I do feel that what I do also is a vocation. And when I went to France to work on my research for my doctorate and what later became the book, The Voices of Nîmes, I remember being in the church in, the, in my 20s um, in Oxford and people who went on missions would kind of get sent out. And I remember finding it actually a little hurtful that because I was going to go and do something secular, quote-unquote, there was no kind of sending out, whereas I actually felt my work of recovering these people's lives was what I was supposed to do. So I've never quite completely made sense of how my faith animates my work, but I know that it does. Hello and welcome to today's podcast. Just before Belle and I introduce our guest, Susanna Lipscomb, do look out for a bonus conversation with Susanna that we're adding to the end of today's show, an additional chance for her to flesh out some of her thoughts from today's conversation. For now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Reenchanting podcast. We are the podcast from Seen and Unseen, and we basically take this opportunity to speak to many interesting people um, on either side of the Christian faith to chat about whether our secular post-Christian world can be reenchanted by the mystery of the Christian faith. Yeah, I'm Justin Briley. Uh, Belle joins me as usual, and we've got a fantastic guest joining us today. Susanna Lipscomb is an award-winning historian, author, and broadcaster who's brought the loves, lives, and intrigues of the 16th century to millions of people through TV shows, podcasts, and writing. Uh, she's known for her work on Henry VIII and the Reformation, and was one of the first people to handle the recently discovered prayer book of Thomas Cromwell. We'll be asking her about that in a moment. Uh, the author, of course, of a number of books including 1536, The Year That Changed Henry VIII, and uh, her most recent book, The Voices of Nîmes, Women, Sex and Marriage in a Reformation Languedoc. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, so Susanna, you can, you can tell me whether, whether I was. Yes, yeah, so we're going to be talking to Susanna about why she's devoted her life to understanding the past, the way the British monarchy has shaped Christendom, why she's focused on uncovering the real stories of the women in our history books, and how, as a Christian, she puts her faith and the tumultuous history of church together. So welcome along. Thank you for having me. Um, We're, as usual, situated at the top of Lambeth Palace Library with the wonderful London backdrop behind us. Pretty special place to be recording. But because we always start here at Lambeth Palace Library, we always start by asking our guests, what have you been reading lately? What's on your bedside table at the moment, Susanna? My bedside table is awash with books. Uh, I actually had to put a bookcase next to it to accommodate the two piles that had built up. And now I have the bookcase full of books and the two piles (laughs) and then the the bedside table. So what have you been reading recently? Um, At the moment, I am reading a few novels. I've just started... Uh, Disobedient, which is Elizabeth Fremantle's novel, just to come out uh, in next month, I think, um, about Artemisia Gentileschi. So it's a novel set in the early 17th century about this female artist, and it's beautifully written. Mm. And Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead, which just won the Women's Prize for Fiction and is set in the 80s and 90s of uh, Appalachia in a very poor community. Mm. Oh, and Denise Miner's Confidence, which is a crime novel. So those are the novels. But I also listen to Audible books a lot. So uh, I'm listening currently to one of your previous guests, Frances Bufford's 
unapologetic. Oh yes, very good. Mm. And Ruth, you know, Bell's managed to persuade him. We think to write a, a follow-up. To I her. have. That, that, yeah. That's at least what he said on the podcast. Whether it will happen, yeah, remains I haven't to heard be from him since. But I'm going to hold it. It's literally <laughs> on record, so I'm going to hold him to it. I hope he does. It's I, a rather wonderful book. It's incredible, isn't it? Very thought-provoking. Yeah. And then the book of form and emptiness by Ruth mm. Onzeki, yeah. which also won the Women's Prize for Fiction yeah. last year. So, it, so you sound of, like you're into your fiction for sure. Uh, yes, I read a lot of yeah. non-fiction for work. Yes, so, mm. so it's I'm, nice I'm reading to, all the time. My job mm. is either reading or writing generally. Or talking, and so all the best things. Yes, <laughs> yeah. exactly. Communicating in various ways, yeah. um, or receiving other people's communications, and it means that I enjoy novels for relaxation. Mm. Yeah, and you probably won't find that many novels in the library we're we're standing on top of here. But is are there anything in the treasures of this ecclesiological archive that you would like to get your hands on? Indeed, <laughs> given that I was coming here, I made an appointment to go and view some manuscripts. So there are some wonderful manuscripts here relating to the work I'm doing at the moment, which is on Henry VIII's Queens. Mm. And so there are some treasures here that I'm hoping to see Mm. later today. Apparently, there was one being exhibited recently, I think, Belle, which was uh, Henry VIII um, and his sort of divorce papers, essentially, yeah. with with his notes in the margin. <laughs> yeah, we we got a yeah. It wasn't exhibited. We got a little peek, and it was such a treat. And I couldn't. <laughs> you must get this all the time, but I literally could not get my head around what my eyes were seeing. Yeah, he was sort of, he'd annotated sort of his own divorce and scribbled bits out and tried to change bits. He was and, an inveterate scribbler. He was always <laughs> writing in the margins of things and changing things. And yeah, he actually was quite an incredible theologian. He was really opposed to Luther's idea of justification mm. by faith through grace. And so when in the 1530s, his bishops proposed a kind of outline of theology called the Bishop's Book, he changed the meaning of certain paragraphs by introducing one word or another. So he changed wow. the meaning of something to say that it was chiefly by grace, but not not only by works, <laughs> rather than not by works. Wow. You see what I mean? If you add in the words chiefly and only, yes. you change the yeah. theology of the passage. It's hard to imagine King Charles kind of taking quite such an active interest oh, in, Oh, I know. don't know. I think he's <laughs> think actually yeah. really got a great mind when it comes to thinking about these questions. Actually. Mm. I think he's yeah. uh, got a lively intelligence. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I had no idea that Henry VIII had a little theological side to him. Oh, it's what he did when he was... In difficult times. I mean, after Jane Seymour died in 1537, he spent his time either hunting or working on books of theology. No way. That's how he dealt with the grief. Why don't we know more about this then? Why, why are we mm. so obviously ignorant of, of all of this? Because Henry VIII's story is so tabloid mm. with the six mm. wives and two of them beheaded and the break with Rome seems a dramatic moment in terms of his sexual history yes. and in terms of our political history mm. that we perhaps don't think about the religious underpinnings. And it's true that it's the founding motion was certainly not religious, mm. but how he came to interpret it very much was in terms of what he saw as right or wrong in, in theological terms. And yeah. I, I, there was this moment where what he was proposing was something between what came to be Protestantism and what came to be Roman Catholicism in its post-Reformation form and could have been an idiosyncratic kind of Henricianism. I suppose we end up mm. with the Anglican Church, which is a version of that. But it, it, Henry himself 
was even more wedded to certain Roman Catholic mm. theology. Mm. And we have this idea that he made the church Protestant. He didn't at all. He wasn't a Protestant at all. He hated Luther vehemently. Right. That's so interesting. So would you say that this sort of quite popular idea that he, well, what I learned in school, although I hope none of my teachers are listening to this, you were wonderful, um, <laughs> was that the Church of England exists because Henry VIII wanted a divorce. Well, that's true. It's certainly true because he broke away from the authority of Rome in order to annul his marriage to Catherine. So that is broadly yeah. true. What that church then looked like is decided on other matters. So mm. Henry writes the first doctrinal statement to the Church of England in 1536 and okay. is involved in these debates with his b bishops, people like Thomas Cranmer, about what it's going to be mm. and is with ho holding back reform in various ways whilst he's alive. And then we have the reaction to that, which is Edward's reign, which right. is this intense period of yeah. uh, quite extreme Protestantism of whitewashing walls and right. tearing down statues. So, so <laughs> he was before. more of a died-in-the-wall reformer in that sense than, Edward. than, uh, the, uh, than Henry was in that sense. Edward was a child, and so the people who were acting on his behalf were. Mm. But certainly by the time that Edward died when he was 15 – he seems to have demonstrated a fairly piebald sense of right and wrong, right. as you would expect from a teenager. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. Um, tell us about the, the prayer book that you were recently one of the first people to get your hands on. So this is the amazing work of the curators at Hever Castle, Alison Palmer, Dr. Owen Emerson and Kate McCaffrey, who had been working on the Book of Hours that they possess, they have two that belong to Anne Boleyn, one printed and one manuscript. This is the printed Book of Hours. And they had worked out that the Morgan Library in New York had exactly the same printed Book of Hours that belonged to Catherine of Aragon. So they brought mm. together these two books in an exhibition, and that was fascinating. Different levels of illumination. You could get your package of illumination on the, <laughs> on the text. This is so soon after printing that people are still trying to make printed books look like manuscripts. Just for those who aren't familiar with the, the, a book of hours, what, what exactly is that? Yes, of course. A book of hours was or is a daily devotional. It's generally for those who are quite uh, rich and wealthy mm. because they tend to be illuminated and beautiful items. But the idea is that you can pray through the offices or the hours right. of um, the church day and so there are prayers for all occasions. They tend to be in Latin, though these printed books have some prayers in English. Mm. And they are typically items of Orthodox Roman Catholic faith. Mm. So it was very interesting then when the team at Hever identified that a book they had gone to see at the Wren Library at Trinity College, Cambridge, that was again a third copy of this printed book of ours, the same run printed by the same Parisian printer, Germain Ardouin, in 1527 or 28, was the book that we see in Hans Holbein's portrait of Thomas Cromwell lying on the table in front of him. Mm. Complete serendipity that they noticed, Alison actually noticed, that it was the same book because it has this distinctive binding. Anne and Catherine's books don't have their original bindings, but Cromwell's book has this silver gilt, i.e. silver with gold on um, 
intricate metalwork, and then a massive garnet at the center of it, had one on the back as well, and then on the clasps. And so then they set about making sure that it actually was Cromwell's book and doing, looking into the provenance and checking it all out. And isn't this amazing? So this has been in that picture since it was painted in 1532. Mm-hmm. And by the early 17th century, people had forgotten that that was the connection, apart right. from the people who gave the book mm. to Trinity College Library. Since the 17th century, no one has made the connection before that this book is there and it's in the picture. And it is the only item we know of in a 16th century portrait. I mean, it's absolutely thrilling. It's really hidden in plain sight. That's crazy. (laughs) And here's Thomas Cromwell, the great architect of the English Reformation, Mm. owning this Roman Catholic book of prayer. There you go. Well, it, 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 it sounds like something from sort of some sort of, you know, film that will be eventually produced about, you know, connecting the dots between this sort of interesting detective mm. case for working this out. Mm. But um, th- these are some of the, the interesting things you get up to then, Susanna. Um, where did your, your love of this whole period come from, would you say? So I remember when I was about 11, sticking pictures of Henry VIII on my school books, and I grew up in Cheam, which is near Nonsuch Palace that no longer stands, obviously, but I went to a school called Nonsuch High School and walked down Anne Boleyn's Walk. So I always think that perhaps there was something in the water, you know, just that it was inevitable. Nothing in history is inevitable, my teachers would say. (laughs) But there was a sense of being preordained. I didn't really get into it though until I was at university. I'd chosen to study history, had this amazing tutor, Dr. Susan Brigden, who's written a beautiful book about Thomas Wyatt, for example, that won the Wolfson Prize. She, she was an incredible inspiration. But actually I thought I can't really work on 16th century England when I was deciding that history would be what I would do with my life. Mm. I thought it's totally overstudied. Too many people work on it. And so in the end, I, my doctorate was on 16th century France, and I was working with an amazing scholar called Robin Briggs. And I only came back to working on 16th century England when I came to the end of that study and applied for and got a job as a research curator at Hampton Court Palace. Mm. And so in doing that, I was working on Henry VIII. Mm. And had come back across the channel and a bit earlier in the century. And I've been there ever since. Yeah, that's amazing. And I've noticed, I don't know if it's a resurgence or if it's always been there, but the the women, Henry VIII's wives, Henry VIII's queens, there's been a real resurgence in interest in them in particular, um, in popular culture as well. Like I'm thinking of the musical Six, which um, I haven't seen, but is apparently amazing. Um and that's sort of what your work is on as well. So are there, what parts of their history of their stories have just sort of been lost along the way or have been drowned out or? Yes, there is a resurgence. And you're right that Six the Musical has been really wonderful in galvanizing a generation of young women, particularly in, mm. in their interest in these women as women. And I think if we look at some of the scholarship from 20 years ago or so, which are the big collective biographies, some of them really hold up, but some of them give us a perspective that isn't the women's perspective. It's Mm. a history from outside. And that's the danger with working on women of this period is that so many of the sources aren't written by them. 
there are about 70 letters from Catherine of Aragon, for example, but that's not true for Jane Seymour. Mm. And also that we are working with material that was processed in the 19th century. So the 19th century scholars who compiled state papers and put them in printed form, put them in chronological order, this sort of thing, did an amazing act of scholarship, monumental. But all that interested 19th century men, this another great age of patriarchy, <laughs> it, about 16th century women is mm. not all that interests us. Yeah, sure. And so over the last 25 years or so, scholars are starting to ask different questions. And as you say, they continue to be fascinating in popular mm. culture. There's an exhibition coming up at the National Portrait Gallery next year, which is on Henry VIII's Queens. But it starts precisely with places like Six and The Mirror and the Light and ah. various filmic and mm. staged performances. Yeah. Because that's where our interest starts. And I mm. think so often those popular versions or novels or whatever draws people in yes. and then they get mm. interested in what's actually fact and what's fiction yeah because do you find that i um it's in no way the same thing but sort of when i do sort of more biblical studies work i've done a lot of work on the women in the gospels in particular because i think what i've what i found out doing that is that history isn't always neutral and our act of remembering isn't neutral and memory what we choose to remember and what we don't and how none of that is neutral there are power dynamics in all of that and quite often that there are gendered power dynamics in all of that so then do you feel fiercely annoyed when some of these women are misremembered misinterpreted like I can't tell you how annoyed how annoyed I get with some interpretations of Mary Magdalene for example <laughs> and then also is it really actually fulfilling to see them presented in a more rounded full probably a lot more realistic way with you know lots of interpretations stripped off them that just sort of didn't belong on them to begin with well first of all i'd say that it's absolutely right that our version of history is shaped by power mm. i edited a book a couple of years ago with helen carr which was called what is history now and we thought about ways of writing history helen carr is the great granddaughter of E.H. Carr, who wrote a mm. seminal book in 1961 called What is History? And we asked different historians to explore different themes. And I explored precisely this question, how can we recover the lost lives of women? And it moved on from what E.H. Carr had said, which is about the fact that we pick our facts as historians, to think about the fact that what gets into the archives is also determined by power. Mm. As I was saying, whether we have documents in women's mm. voices, either they've written themselves, unlikely in the 16th century, only 5% literacy among women, mm. or mediated by men, okay, then you've got their questions that are there, perhaps mm. hidden in the text you have, etc. Or who just was not important enough to make it into the archives. So we have these great holes and we're just starting to recognise that the version of history that we've told is a version that is shaped by power insofar as the people in power want a narrative that justifies their dominance in many mm. ways. And so we talk about people who have reigned and we talk about people who have been powerful and we're remembering now that there were other people mm. in the past. In fact, we probably wouldn't have been any of those people <laughs> and our stories in the past wouldn't have been told until yes. now. So people are being interested in, in the marginalised or 
not even the minority, but the the silent majority. Mm. And I love trying to recover their stories. When I was working on the women of Nîmes, none of whom were well known, none of and whom are just just for background to this. This this was this book of yours was based on uh, transcripts of what women who had been accused essentially of sexual. Um, you know, misdemeanors and so on in, in this part of France, uh, their kind of testimony and defense, as it were, which is a very unusual set of sort of bits of historical data, I suppose, because it was so unusual to hear women talking about that side of life in, in that culture. So, so this was this was a kind of book that, that for you was was an unusual insight into into this. Yes. Yeah, so I was working on records of the Protestant consistory. So whenever people converted to Protestantism, Calvinism in the south of France, they would set up these consistories. In fact, there was one in Geneva, of course, mm. as well. And consistories were the governing body of the church, but they were also a form of moral tribunal. And their aim was to create a community that was visibly holy. Mm. And because 16th century men had some deeply patriarchal ideas, controlling morals meant essentially controlling women. And so the curious thing about it is that we have this patriarchal institution that did something that no other patriarchal institutions are doing, really. Uh, criminal courts at the time, women generally couldn't testify if they were married, for example. They were covered under law by their husbands. But we have women married and unmarried, rich and poor, testifying before the consistory about their lives. And women started to use it for their own ends. So maidservants who had been sexually abused by their employers came and told the consistory what had happened mm. and brought these powerful men to some extent to account for what they'd done. The consistory doesn't always side sure, with them, of course, sure. mm. but we have their stories. Yes. And so to go right. to your question, Bo, I was trying to make their voices sing. I felt like I had a responsibility to the thousand or so women I encountered to bring their stories to light. Mm. It's, a, it's a little bit of a sort of ridiculously emotional thing to say, but one feels a kind of duty to the people of the yeah. past. Yeah, no, absolutely. Because I think there's a very interesting, again, I'm probably taking this on a tangent, but again, sort of in the work I've done, there's this really interesting thing of the, actually certain women, they sort of, it's almost like a form of like sexual harassment in, in history and how they've been remembered if they've been misremembered. So there's like, there's that element as well as even after death, the way we speak about people, the way we remember them, all the way we decide not to is still a matter of justice. I completely agree. I completely mm. agree. And that's the case with all women and it's magnified when we think about uh, people of colour because yeah. black women uh, so often have only been remembered in the context of their, their violation, violence against them. So the, there, is, there are these layers of interpretation about what we know about them, how that has been constructed, how the generations since have repurposed that for their mm. own ends. Mm. And of course, I'm not suggesting we don't we are repurposing for our sure. own ends as well. Yeah. yeah. And that is what we have to be cautious about. We have to be conscious of our own biases that we're bringing to our work. 
And, and so when, when you're doing history, are you kind of getting back to some objective truth or, or is every historian in a sense bringing a flavor or a story or a, a narrative out? Because in a sense, you could read a biography written by two different historians and get a very different sense of, of the, I don't know, the politics or the, the story that was going on. What, what, is there a kind of really objective kind of side to, to history in the end? It's both those things you've said. So it's certainly the case that we bring ourselves to the, our work and it's actually the cause for hope. It's why I say to young historians, don't worry about someone else doing it because they won't be asking the questions that you're asking. Mm -hmm. And we bring our perspective and those research questions are so important when you go into the archives. But we're always hoping for objective truth. I'm, you know, there was a moment of postmodernism where everyone said it wasn't possible. And maybe it isn't, but we have to try. If, if there's, no point, there's no point continuing with it, we might as well down tools if we don't think that we could try to get there at least. Hmm. And getting at that as far as we are able seems to me our great motivation for me, working on Henry VIII's Queens at the moment, it feels that the perspective you take on them can often determine the nature of how truthful the account mm. you reach is. And if you are seeking to see things from their perspective, then it's possible actually to see something more truthfully than it has mm. hitherto been seen. I wanted to sort of follow up because you, you told us this interesting aspect that many people are probably ignorant of regarding Henry VIII's theological acumen. What about the wives and the queens? Do, have, has your research uncovered a sort of a, anything new about their spiritual leanings and that kind of thing? Well, yes, it is. I mean, I'm working particularly, I suppose, in terms of new things thinking about Anne Boleyn's faith quite a bit and um, how much that was formed during her time in France and her exposure to reformist circles. Not that that isn't known, but just mm. I found some new evidence to help reflect on that. Yeah. And thinking also particularly about Catherine, Katerina's, Catherine of Aragon's uh, faith and how that was shaped by her time with her parents, Isabel and Fernando, who of course found the Inquisition, mm. um, who are the people who are expelling the Jews from yeah. Spain. And so often these women have been deracinated. We talk about them without talking about their childhoods. Mm. And where we have that evidence, we don't have it for all of them, mm. but where we have that evidence, that seems to me so important, or at least to try and press into what we do know, because so many of the stories start when they become queen. Mm. And so you have no idea who they are. Mm. You pick up Catherine of Aragon's story in 1509. She's already 24. She dies at 51. I mean, you know, she's halfway through her life. Yeah. And actually, she, she lives 16 years in Spain. And so I found going back to look at their formative years, which often meant looking at sources outside of English. Anglophone scholars have been... Strangely, who would have thought it remarkably <laughs> parochial? Um, <laughs> that actually we can find lots of new evidence that bring to bear on these questions of things like their faith and their agency and their patronage and, and just generally speaking, how they showed gumption and mm. 
how lively and sort of dynamic they were. Mm. In, I'm not sure how much influence, probably more than I assume uh, queens in the 16th century had, but in that then, do you find, so you find them as more holistic people. Like you say, it's like, it's like we seem to think that their lives began when they met King Henry <laughs> and ended when he decided they ended. But um, do you then find their influence then in his reign or their influence in the culture that was sort of surrounding them as well? Or is that harder to find? So I'd answer that in two ways. One, I am trying to resist looking at the influence on Henry at the moment of my work because he is the great black hole. You know, mm. he draws all things towards him. And that's yeah. why so many people ended up writing histories, yeah. essentially a shadow history of Henry VIII when yeah. you're trying to write about these women. Yeah. When I was working on the Protestant church, most people, there'd only been a handful of people who'd used the records before, but they ended up writing sort of ecclesiastical histories of the Protestant church. Yeah. So mm. to read against the grain, you yeah. have to keep resisting the, the dominant narrative. Yes. Yeah. But it is certainly clear that mm. these women, particularly Catherine, who's around for 27 years and who has such a decisive effect, and probably Catherine Parr, are really changing the cultural landscape. Mm. Catherine of Aragon, for example, is such a, a leading figure. She connects England up with most of the royal families of Europe. Um, through her relation. She's part of a very important, powerful family. Mm. And she comes from a culture which has experienced the Renaissance long before the English court catch up. So she's sort of introducing the Renaissance to England oh, wow. and patronizing artists and musicians and scholars like Erasmus, mm. um, who of course introduces her to Holbein like the painters, the uh, Lucas and Susanna and Gerard Horenboot and others. Anne Boleyn is likewise a great patron mm. and herself has picked up a version of the Renaissance in France. So we definitely see it represented in the culture. And so they're certainly having an impact on the cultural life of the country. You obviously have spent a long time tracing the history and biographies and telling other people's stories. Uh, we, we do like to get you to tell your own story a bit though on this podcast as well. Um, and I think many people obviously are familiar with your work, but less aware of the fact that you, you're a Christian yourself, Susanna. I only kind of discovered that when I happened to listen to um, Great Lives uh, several years ago, you were a guest with Matthew Paris talking about C.S. Lewis and you talked about your own influence there. Do you, do you mind sharing a little bit about, about your background in this area and, and perhaps also about how C.S. Lewis influenced you? Yes, yes. C.S. Lewis, Lewis was the great life I chose because his works, Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce and the Narnia books, of course, uh, were very important in terms of helping my imagination develop in a way that made Christianity understandable to me. So my background is that my parents were not Christians when I was born, were sort of just starting to go to church, got me baptized because it was the right thing to do. Um, and I went along with them to Sunday school and to church uh, a few years into my life. Um, 
And it was that experience of going to spring harvest as an eight-year-old and then going to youth groups as a child, which made me make a commitment to Mm. Jesus. And then I found that my intellect had to do some of the lifting as well. Had to catch up with the sort of commitment (laughs) you had made as a young person. Exactly, because I think one believes because of the emotional connection and the sense of what you feel to be true. But as a person who pursues the life of the mind, you also have to feel that that stands up Mm. intellectually. Mm. And so it did. (laughs) And C.S. Lewis was helpful with that, although perhaps there have been ways in which my thought has developed since reading that. When I was a 16-year-old, I went on two weeks of work experience with two vicars Mm. because I was wondering about ordination. And then when I was in my 20s, I accompanied someone to an ordination weekend as their amanuensis and thought about whether it was the right thing for me and got a fairly clear sense that no it wasn't (laughs) (laughs) Um, and yet I do feel that what I do also is a vocation Mm. and when I went to France to work on my research for my doctorate and what later became the book The Voices of Neem Mm. I remember being in the church in the in my 20s um, in Oxford and people who went on missions would kind of get sent out Mm. and I remember finding it actually a little hurtful that because I was going to go and do something secular quote-unquote there was Mm. no kind of sending out whereas I actually felt my work of recovering these people's lives was what I was supposed to do yes Mm. so I've never quite completely made sense of how my faith animates my work but I know that it does right Mm. that's really interesting to hear I mean again if you don't mind me asking a slightly personal question did did you ever go through any sort of doubts I don't know university that kind of thing was it ever hard to hold on to this faith that you had obviously had from an early age yes so I had a period between 18 and 23 when I was finding it hard to make the life I was leading compatible with some of the more stringent Mm -hmm. disciplines that had been conveyed to me as a teenager. And so I I feel that I always had a core belief, but I wasn't it wasn't something I was walking in, if Mm. you put it like that. And when and I also went through a divorce. I, no. I was married and divorced in my early 30s. And again, after that, I, was, I felt that I was, I was clinging on mm. but by my fingertips. Right. Mm. Um, and I think that those, sometimes those moments are really important for kind of grounding one, I suppose. I know that in both instances the phoenix from the ashes was that much brighter Mm. Mm. because there had been the fire yeah Mm. um and 
it took time in both cases there were you know there were there were years of abandonment on my part but i always felt that i was being wooed back mm. 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 there's a real i suppose it's just faith being lived out in actual life isn't it like it's what happens when faith collides with the everyday and there is sort of I suppose a refinement isn't there to sort of the times when it doesn't feel as easy, if, if you know what I mean, if it doesn't feel as easy as breathing. Well, I mean, the thing is, the heart of our faith is that Jesus has said that uh, all have fallen. So we're mm. all on our knees in front of him. So there is no sense of needing to measure up to perfection. Mm. Uh, and I guess that's what I've realized in the end is that we are we all bugger things up all the time <laughs> and, <laughs> and and that's part of being human francis yeah. buffett has an excellent phrase for that which i won't repeat but um the, the human propensity to f things up uh, as he as he so, so eloquently put it yeah um again part of my mind though goes to the fact that you've you've as it were spent your life you know uncovering the rather gory history often of the way mm. the church of england came to be the way that history is replete with lots of terrible sort of atrocities done in the name of god and so on um does it did any of that ever kind of give you pause for thought at a personal level well i know how broken this institution is historically and whether you should be part of it today it's certainly true. I mean, the atrocities in the name of religion have been many and manifold. The way in which, on a small scale, for example, those well-meaning busybodies in southern France made women's lives hell mm. Mm. and policed people's desires was, was awful. I think that humans will always find a vehicle to justify their own hatreds mm. and their own preoccupations. I think the religion is a particularly helpful one because you can say, God told me so. Mm. Um, and that cuts the debate. Mm. I don't think it's God's fault, but I do think that mm. humans are continuing to demonstrate this this buggering up quality i mean mm. you know you can mm. take something that's good and you can make it really evil yeah and i don't think it's particularly the territory of the church i just think that's one of the many arenas arena in which humans have done that mm. do you find Sort of on the flip side of that, I find whenever I think about Christianity as something that is rooted in time and place, in that it is, and in lots of time and place, I know it transcends it, but you can literally see sort of Jesus, his words, his actions, his death, his resurrection, all of these things, you can see them, you can see it all be wrestled with literally throughout history. Do you find that comforting and encouraging and inspiring? Because I know I I find the fact that we ask questions now that were asked centuries ago, like there's something within us that cannot stop wrestling with these questions and cannot stop going back to this 
carpenter from you know the back end of nowhere um to see if he has the answers if you know what i mean do you do you sort of spot that and does how does that make you feel when you see it weave through history so there's a difficulty in that i'm holding in tension the fact that this is a timeless historic faith and yet that it is in each case in its particular manifestation Mm. so it can be moving at one level to find that a great 16th century person is reading the words of the psalms and finding them a comfort Mm. and yet also i then have to reckon with the fact that that same person might have thought that the burning of heretics was perfectly possible yeah Sure, so yeah. it's a, it's both a, the same and a different faith, mm. Mm. and we speak. It goes to the question we were talking about earlier, Justin, about writing from our own age and mm. the sense of interpretation. I think we also bring our own selves to our faith and yeah. to how it's expressed in the church, and our age particularly is manifested there, and. So there are a lot of people who get killed for a lot of things at the time that I'm writing about. (laughs) And religion is one of the key things. Henry VIII on one day arranges the execution of three Catholics and three Protestants, both of whom are thought to be too extreme. So that, that that is how people manifested what they thought was right and wrong. And... I suppose we're just very keen as humans to put things into black and white. We are, aren't we? Mm. Again, this is going to be another one of those slightly awkward questions, Susanna, so forgive me. But the, <laughs> I bet you love but, it when a question starts like that. <laughs> but Bring again, it on, Justin. doing that kind of more objective, I'm a historian, here's you know, me writing about how it all came together in the 16th century and the, the birth of you know, what we now call the Anglican Church and everything else. Uh, what, you can do that kind of exercise. Do you at the same time, as, as a person of faith, also believe that in all its gory ups and downs that, that God was somehow working through all that, that there has been a, some sort of thread that, that does actually have a divine imperative, even if you wouldn't necessarily put that in your history book, mm-hmm. as it were? It, can you at a personal level sort of see that traced through the history of the church? Oh, that is a biggie. <laughs> I think I would say that there is a thread of God at work through the history of humans. Mm. um, And in some cases that's manifested in the church. I suppose that we have to tread carefully. I feel as a historian have to tread carefully around narratives of progress. Mm -hmm. Mm. And that sometimes that's the version that we might use as a shorthand in the church um but i think they've been i think that god deals with people as individuals as people and i think that we have individuals who have uh had thoughts or we might call them revelations or ways of seeing the world which have been deeply helpful to other people and sometimes that's manifested in the way institutions have worked but quite often when we get together as a group we make things worse <laughs> it's, mm. it, it, it's it, 
history in that sense, it, it is very hard sometimes because I remember when we were speaking to Marilyn Robinson on the last season, Bell, and she is a, a huge, you know, fan of um, the uh, the reformers and uh, the, the Puritans and so on. She loves reading John Calvin and gets so much from it, and as do many people. But at the same time, he, you know, commanded the the execution of servitors and so on. You know, it, it was a in a sense, you could say, well, it was a different age. There was a different sort of set. Of, but it's sort of, it's it's hard sometimes, isn't it, to reconcile the fact that these these architects of the mm. faith, in a sense, lived in such a different moral world at one level to, to what we kind of assume. But today. the heart of that goes back to the fact that we think that people who should have anything good to say should have morally unimpeachable lives. Right. And... Yet, by definition, our faith says that that's not true. Mm. Mm. So we've got a kind of category error here, which is that we think we should have people who are guiding us be perfect in some way. And they, their lives were imperfect in ways that were formed by the period in which they were lived. And, and we'll live. probably find our lives are imperfect when mm. the historians look back at ours in so many ways. I mean, I think ways. I could just say that about mine right now. I, don't, <laughs> I need no distance to do that. So I think that we actually have to reckon with that as part of who they are. Mm. And some of the question today is that in the world at large, in our culture, we want to have goodies and baddies. And mm. yet humans, generally speaking, aren't one or the other. Mm -hmm. That's a kind saints. of childish way of seeing the world. <laughs> and actually... The way we need to see the world is is a bit more complicated than that. Mm. I, think. I was I was thinking that as you were speaking, is it's kind of is that quite a modern way of judging people? Is is wanting to put them in these binary ca categories? Because I think you know exactly what you said about the architects of Christianity. Also, you can go right back to the people within the Bible, the mm. people mm. that wrote the Bible. You know the people. You know all of again. Our maybe maybe it's our modern sensibilities, or maybe it's just our human. We find comfort in it. We want to put people into black and white. And that's impossible when you're looking at people within the Bible and people who have built Christianity around it. So is that quite mm. a modern way? Or is that something in our human nature? It's a really interesting question. I think it probably isn't just modern, but I think that with our particularly efficient way of shaming people today... <laughs> on social media it was being done for centuries mm. but we we can just do it at a greater We've rate of knots now it. Yeah. that we ask people to live up to impossible standards and are then enthusiastic about pulling them down when they haven't reached mm. that mm. and it if I'm perfectly honest, I think it's just easier to do that because it means that we don't have to examine what we're doing wrong ourselves. Mm. If you can say that everybody's good or bad, then it allows for you, obviously, to be in the good camp and you don't have to examine mm. what is not so good. Mm. But, I, you know, I think it if you're, a, I don't know a friend or a parent or, you know, a lover, you you know that you're not all good, really. Mm. Mm. And it's trying to understand that there's a sense of dignity and grace conveyed on each person at the same time as us holding this, yes. you know, 
mm. cruelty within us. Mm. I, I think sometimes the problem is in, in our modern culture, it's, it's always one or the other, you know, there's, it's all about, you know, you, you can't escape your brokenness and there is no solution to it. Um, or it's sort of, we're born inherently good and, you know, then something comes along to take that way. Whereas I think Christianity just holds those both together in a sense. It says, no, you're, you're not good enough, but the good news is something's been done about that. And, and so you d- you're not forever encumbered by this sense of your own uh, brokenness or whatever. There's a kind of, it, well, in simple terms, it's salvation, it's grace, as you say. Um, but I, I, I know exactly what you mean, that the moralistic impulse hasn't gone away. You know, it was there in the 16th century. It's still here today, just manifesting itself in other ways. And we still need, I guess, just as they did, <laughs> that, that concept of grace, albeit very imperfectly expressed so often in, in Christianity. I mean, in the 16th century, again, back to Nîmes, one of the ways in which they defined themselves as a community to say was to say, we are behaving well, look at those Catholics. And we find women denouncing other women for bad behavior because by doing so, they could say, mm-hmm. look, I'm respectable, I'm living well, mm. and we're just doing the same thing in so many ways. We mm. compare, you know, look at how that person's parenting their child. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd never do that to, you know, Five minutes later, there we are having a go at them. You know, so there's a, a sense in which we define ourselves by what we're not as much as anything else. Mm. Mm, yeah. Um, thinking about on a slightly different sort of note, but sort of not really, thinking about the past, I was going to say year, but it hasn't even been a year um, in our sort of our UK public consciousness. Um, the Queen has died and we have a new king. And, and both of those events has really put Christianity uh, and its place in our public spheres on display. And I'm just quite interested in how have you found that as a historian who's been very used to seeing the relationship between them both in the past, you've sort of seen living history and has it shocked you that, oh, we're still doing things the same way and we're still craving the same things um, even though so much time has passed? Not shocked at all. I was absolutely delighted to see the coronation, for example. This is just a historic moment coming to life before my very eyes. You know, I write <laughs> yeah. about royal ceremony and this sort of thing all the time. So it's amazing to see enacted before you something that has been going on in slightly mutated forms ever since 975 or whenever it was. Mm. You know, this, it's extraordinary. Um, and... I think the other thing that's been very interesting is the light that has been shed over the last year on both the faith that the Queen had and now that the King has. So Queen Mm. Elizabeth II wrote the foreword to a book called The Servant King, The Servant Queen and the King She Serves. Yes. And I was really struck by the innovations in the coronation service that spoke exactly to that idea. The fact Mm. that Charles appeared and was met by the child and who welcomed him in the name of the servant king. Name of the king of kings, yes. And Mm. and there were sort of oaths he swore along the lines of, you know, meeting that example of being the servant king. And when he was anointed, the most holy moment of the service, he had that screen in front of him with the tree with all the countries of the Commonwealth on, with his cipher at the bottom. And that very much is a sense that he's resourcing and serving. Now, Antimonicus will be sort of screaming at this point. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that the monarchy does conceive of their 
job or the royal family does conceive of the role of the monarch as being one of service and that for the queen certainly and i think for the king the spirit animating that has been rooted in their faith mm. Mm. yeah there's a sense in which of course though of naturally today the the power of the monarchy is a, is a shadow of its former self. The power of the church is a shadow of its former self. Many people predict the demise of both. What, what do you think? Do you think that's going to happen on either count? At the moment, the anti-monarchists don't have a sufficiently compelling narrative. So it depends on whether that can be developed or not. There certainly are many problems attendant upon the royal family, Prince Andrew, um, there seems like there was a sense of disgrace being covered up there. The problems with regard to the relationship with Prince Harry and, um, and Meghan and these difficulties that are being played out in the public eye so it's interesting to see where the monarchy will go. I mean, I personally think that the support for Charles has proven to be much higher than most people thought it would be. And the approval ratings for William and Catherine are astonishingly high. So we're probably good for a couple of generations. Um, <laughs> but th there is a question about what the royal family means and what it does and mm. what's the point of a monarch as we go on F from my point of view it's the sort of least worst option but right. that's because i don't fancy having an elected head of state mm. as in the u.s with the politicized nature that that brings yeah. we we already have enough of a mess mm. at the top of <laughs> politics in this country we really don't need another area in which to, to screw mm. that up so I, I think the the question really will be what the royal family looks like in years to come and what the narrative is that anti-monarchists mm. develop which could replace the current mm. traditional comforting narrative of the royal family mm. what about the role of the church i mean we're in lambeth palace you know what about in particular relation to its establishment with the state what do you reckon gosh that's a big one um <laughs> we only ask the big questions on yeah. this podcast I mean, it's clearly rooted in tradition. We saw it all in the coronation, in the oaths that the king took. And yet my sense is that it isn't clear necessarily what function that connection is still playing mm. in practice. It, because it, it had a... An obvious function at one time, less so today. I think so. I I think that we could see the disestablishment of the church without that doing any damage to either party. Mm. In mm. fact, maybe it would be better for both to right. be separated. <laughs> but uh, on the other hand, I liked... And like the fact that when a king is crowned, the most important moment isn't, 
or a queen is crowned, the most important moment isn't when the crown goes onto the head. It is that sacred moment. And I liked the fact that the king chose to find ways to include mm. representatives of other faiths yeah. and yeah. You know, did everything to accommodate uh, the keeping of Shabbat for the chief mm. rabbi, mm -hmm. for his greeting, and so on. And so I do feel that something more capacious might be the way for the future. Mm. We we do call this podcast the Reenchanting Podcast, and and it's with a view to sort of asking whether uh, the world we live in, and increasingly, you know, at least in the West, secular materialistic sort of culture, could be reenchanted with the Christian story of reality. Um, we know that the statistics tell us there are fewer and fewer people in the churches that you probably spend a lot of time, you know, looking through the archives of. Do, do, you, do, you, do you have any thoughts on what that future could look like and how that re-enchanting could happen? Perhaps you've bumped into people who you've seen the re-enchantment happen to and, and may, maybe there's something that we could learn from them. I don't know. I don't think we live in an age of disenchantment. I think that people are just enchanted by other things. Mm -hmm. mm. I mean, I'm really struck by the rise in number of young women calling themselves witches. Mm. And some of that is to do with a sense of connection with nature mm -hmm. and a sense of control. So one of the chief challenges for us as humans is working out what we can control and what we can't. And we often find mm -hmm. the... We often say we can control things we can't and that we can't, things we can. And there is a sense of mysticism in that. There's an enchantment with computer games and social media and mm. stories that we tell through films and TV series. There, are, People are enchanted by all manner of things. And I think all of that... I actually all think it's all really hopeful mm. um, because, you know, when when Tolkien and C.S. Lewis talked about faith, where, after which Lewis became a Christian or a theist, first of all, it, it was because, as Tolkien said, this is, the, you know, the true myth. Mm. And so I think a fascination with superheroes is really underlying that, a fascination with a superhero. Mm. And to me, there is a sense in which the great story underpins all stories. So I don't think we're, we need to ask people to be re-enchanted. I think they are enchanted. It's just about orienting them in the end, should they wish, mm. towards that particular story. Well, thank you for all you're doing in re-enchanting the past, the kings and queens, and the stories of women as well. Really? Uh, and for sharing a little bit about your own personal journey as well along the way. It's been such an interesting conversation. And thanks for being with us, Suzanne. Thank you. Thank you. Well, this is a little bit of a first for the Reenchanting podcast. Um, we're actually going to invite Susanna back on at the end of the interview because after we'd recorded uh, up on the top floor of Lambeth Palace Library Bell, um, mm. Susanna got in touch to say, you know what, there's a few things I would have liked to have said and didn't quite get the chance to. And maybe could we flesh out some more of the thoughts that I had at the time? Um, so we said, well, of course. Um, of there, course. There, there are no sort of rules about 
that was your one chance, Susanna. No, <laughs> no more, no more conversation from here on in. So uh, Susanna joins us again this time uh, online to 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 kind of do a little bit of post post conversation reflection. So welcome back, Susanna. Thank you. I think it says a lot about my character, doesn't it? A perfectionist. <laughs> I can't know. There are things I want to say still. You used, Sometimes you used... an hour just isn't enough. Well, That's, exactly. There you go. Yeah, you used a French phrase that I I had to look up, um, which 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 effectively translates to wanting to kind of make things perfect in retrospect or something. But yeah, I, it's I can't called l'esprit de l'escalier. It's the, right. the thought you think of as you're going down the staircase as you leave the party. The thing you should have said. <laughs> oh, that's an incredible saying that sums up so l'esprit much. L'esprit de escalier. Brilliant. Yeah. I'm using that one. I'm using yeah. that one. Um, okay, brilliant. Um, um, one of the things that you wanted to pick up on was obviously we talked a little bit in the interview about you know your own sort of journey with faith and some of the doubts that you kind of had to deal with along the way. But um, yeah, I think I think you wanted to develop your thoughts on that a little bit further. What what, what more did you want to say, Suzanne? Well, you asked me about whether I had had doubts, and I reflected on it in the course of my life. But afterwards, I felt that that wasn't an entirely complete answer because mm. I think it would be fairer to say that I doubt all the time mm. or at least I wrestle all the time and the things that make me doubt are or make me wrestle are when I hear about a five-year-old girl who's been abused and murdered by her stepfather or there's a terrible story about two parents who had given their seven-year-old boy salt to eat and he had eventually died. They'd been so abusive towards him. And and when you hear these awful stories, you think, how can the prayers of children go unanswered? What does it mean to have a God who doesn't answer children's prayers? Because if we're saying our God is all-knowledgeable and all-powerful and good, then it feels like he should be doing something about this stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course, I know the pat answers. I know that, you know, the sophistry that we can say, yes, there's 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 evil in every one of us. And God did something about that. And it may be that to try and cut evil out of humans is like to take the heart out of a, a body. You know, there's nothing left. Mm-hmm. There's no life left in it. But it but it doesn't really give an an answer and you know each one of us has something in our life that perhaps isn't as terrible as the things i've just said but where things haven't worked out yeah and so i don't know how i reconcile my experience of god which is very much a, a manifest sense of god and uh, and my experience of prayers answered which is definitely the case um and provision and all of that with thinking about prayers that are unanswered and the prayers of the poor and the prayers of the vulnerable. And so I wanted to just reflect a bit more honestly on that, really. I do think there's probably something about the news agenda, you know, the the phrase, if it bleeds, it leads. I think there is something about what we hear. I'm aware that when I see things on a human scale, what I experience in my own lived, such a terrible expression, lived experience, but, you know, my own life, what I, I can encompass in my own life, tends to show much more experience of God at work than what I can see on a global scale. And that could be about how news is curated to get to me and what I hear about 
from the world at large. Mm. But that's that's mm. would be a, that's that's the rub. Therein yeah. is the, lies the rub, right? Yeah. So yeah. And I don't know whether it's that it's doubt or whether it's that I'm wrestling with God. Um, you know, there's I think, but I think that is the whole area in which people who don't believe in God can be quite angry at him, <laughs> you know, because yeah. because of what goes on. So mm. when you say that um you wrestle with those things, what does that wrestling entail? What does that look like? Like on a really practical level, how do you go about wrestling and with those sorts of things? So it means I suppose, I don't know if it's practical really, but it means I think about it and talk about it. Mm. Uh, I I think there's quite a good biblical tradition of complaining. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the person in the Bible we know most about how he prayed is David and he spends half his time saying, you're amazing, half his time saying, why did you do this? <laughs> so um, I do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, I think it's really important, like more practically, to to put my money and my time into situations that help mm-hmm. causes that move me, and I do feel more as time goes on that I should respond to where the spirit moves me. Like there are things mm-hmm. that animate me or upset me, and that's where that's the area in which I need to respond. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I- I yeah, guess a lot of I it don't is, know the answers. Yeah, it it is. I think the reality is, in my experience, is that most Christians do just live in the tension of that. Very few people, I think, have resolved it. You know, I mean, you can obviously, as you said, there are intellectual approaches to this. You know, the Odysseys, to give them their technical term. Um, but I think they very rarely land for someone who's actually gone through the abuse or whatever because an intellectual answer doesn't really satisfy in that sense but i suppose the one thing i take away speaking as a christian is that uh we do hold a faith in which god suffered that that's the idea at the center of it that god himself experienced betrayal and abuse and humiliation and and everything else and even though that doesn't give a sort of logical intellectual answer necessary to the problem of evil it does I think it can be more comforting for someone who does experience suffering and evil to know that that God has experienced that in some very real way you know, on a human yes. level. And it means that when we're in those things, we're in it with someone who knows it mm-hmm. <laughs> and who's gone through it. Uh, and I think that's the thing. I think that that I my sense is that the you know if you do find someone who's solved it, please. Tell them to give me a call. But my, I reckon they're my, lying. I reckon they're lying anyway. But my, my sense is that the way that God works in us is internal, and in us, and so that we can never know the experience of someone else going through that. Like so, our opportunity to meet God in our own suffering is there, mm. um, and that's not something that we can. Speak perceive from the outside in other people's lives but but still yeah no yeah absolutely (laughs) yeah no yeah it it doesn't take away from the the awfulness and uh, and there there are no answers all you can do is is grieve with those who grieve sometimes isn't it and and that's that's as much as you can do i mean we also covered in in the interview the history of the church the, the sometimes sordid history um 
of that you you kind of mentioned the fact that at the end of the day the church is composed of human beings and and that's where the primary problem resides when it comes to the evil done in the name of god in that sense um but i think you wanted to add a little little bit more to that thought yes, as well yes and and just finally to say one more thing about the last question mm. which is that if we don't stay focused on this issue if we don't keep asking this question about evil essentially mm. um then i don't think that then I don't think our faith means anything because I think that if we say that God is love, then love has got to actually mean what we think it means. <laughs> um, and so I, I think it's crucial to Christianity that he keeps thinking about that. And, and well, talking about evilness, as you say, yes, the church, my experience as a historian is, and again, I felt afterwards that perhaps I had been a little pat about this. Like My experience as a historian is that the church absolutely has been at the center of some terrible abuses. I've spent a lot of time thinking recently about late 15th century Spain, which is the period in which people who fundamentally believe themselves to be following God's will, set up the Inquisition to punish those who were suspected to be apostate Christians, Jewish people who are now thought to have become Christians and then turned back. Mm. Um, and had them burnt at the stake um, in, and also, of course, expelled the Jews and the Muslims from Spain. We move on to the 16th century, get into the wars of religion. And we this is, a you know, where erstwhile neighbours are committing the most terrible acts of atrocity. I mean, stomach-churning violence against each other in the name of faith. And so it is certainly true that the church has been at the centre of much violence. and. Again, my explanation here is that the, that the church has been a place of power because it's been associated with God's power, and that you know, as is it Rob Spear, absolute power corrupts, absolute you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. I mean, I think there's very much a sense that that that's the reason. But I just wanted to say it is true. <laughs> it is true, yes. and historically speaking, yes. it is absolutely true that the the historic example of the church is not just one of martyrs it's one of martyring mm, absolutely mm, that's something because uh, i think thinking back to our conversation as well this is actually very handy we should do this all the time <laughs> this little reflection but i think i said something like oh don't you find it comforting that you know you can think back to someone hundreds of years ago and they're reading the same thing and wrestling with it isn't that so great and i and i think you said yeah but there's a real tension there isn't there because we also look back and someone has taken a piece of the bible that we love and has used it to justify um to instigate things that we can't get our heads around so there's and that's a tension I hadn't thought about the tension in the here and now but I suppose being a historian having your mind not just in this age but in quite a few uh there's 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 past tension and also kind of if we think ahead there's future tensions to kind of grapple with as well which is really really interesting and and I think probably not to be shied away from I suppose as well maybe yeah. Yes, it's certainly a challenge. And we think, you know, people I spend time with, Catherine of Aragon, I spent a lot of time with recently, and she's a person of faith, mm. very much so. She's deeply religious. And in some way, I share that faith. And yet, I don't 
agree with the working out of that faith. But to be fair, that that could be said geographically as well as historically. I mean, there are people who, who are manifestly of my faith who do things in the name of that faith that mm. I do not countenance. Yeah. So it, it yeah. comes down to the importance of in biblical interpretation and preaching and thinking and and being led by the Spirit, I suppose. But the, so, but it really matters, right? How we understand these things mm. really matters. Um, it, you know, the abuse of the treatment of homosexuals throughout history, for mm. example, much of it seems to come down to various interpretations of biblical texts, which may or may not be accurate. I don't think mm. necessarily are. And so uh, there seems to me that there's huge scope uh, for for focusing on the wrong things. And I did talk in our interview about how I feel that people have a tendency towards black and white, and that often focuses mm. around things that mm. we as humans think matter. Like Jesus doesn't really say anything about sex, and yet we're, mm. the church has been completely fixated about sex mm. for centuries. So it says loads about money, and we've managed to let that one go by. Mm. Um, so, um, <laughs> you know, I just, it's really interesting, but I think how we interpret things makes a big yeah. difference. I've I've really appreciated you sort of being willing to wear your faith on your sleeve a bit, both in the interview we recorded at Lambeth Palace and and now in this sort of addendum, Susanna, because it's it uh, as I said, I think you know in the interview, um, probably not that many people are, are are aware that you're a Christian, and and it's been really interesting for you to. They are now. They are now yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're sort of working out your faith in a very public way by coming on the podcast and sharing mm. some of these thoughts with us. But we really appreciate it, and uh, and I do hope that it helps people to to understand that. Being a Christian is not some simple, you know. Oh yes, a black and white issue. It's something you struggle with. That you know, you you obviously have to work out on a day to day basis. And and you've helped us to see the way that you try to do that yourself. So really appreciate your your input again on on the well, show today. Great to talk to you both again. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, that was actually felt like a bit of a treat being able to yeah. revisit some of those things. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, perhaps we should do it more often, you know, give it's sometimes it's hard, isn't it, in the moment mm. to necessarily think of everything you want to say, but it's nice to have the opportunity to reflect and come back and say a bit more uh, later. Absolutely. That uh I'm not going to try and say it in French, but that phrase, I feel like I live my life on those stairs. L'esprit d'escalier, yes. <laughs> oh, there you go. Nicely I, done. I, it, was, it was a wonderful way of putting it, and uh, I'm glad she introduced yeah, me to that phrase. There yeah, you go. absolutely. There you go. So that was our little added extra, a little extra treat from Susanna Lipscomb. If you want more from Reenchanting, do, of course, go and check out the podcast, the video channel as well on YouTube. Do give it a like and a subscribe. And, of course, you can also uh, tell others about it as well. Um, leave us a review if you're listening on podcast. It helps others to discover the show. And you can find much more from Seen and Unseen at the website seenandunseen.com. For now, thank you so much for being with us for this edition of Reenchanting. You've been listening to the Reenchanting podcast. Do subscribe to listen back to all our past episodes and help others to discover the show by rating and reviewing the podcast. You can also find more videos, articles, and resources at seenandunseen.com. See you next time.